0: Revelation 17, as we look, we're going to read this chapter again. We studied verses 1 through 8 last time, and um, today we're going to look at more intently verses 9 through 18 that really don't need, it doesn't need that much explanation because this is an explanation of what John is seeing. Um, The angel gives that, that interpretation essentially. So follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible tonight. I am loving this translation. I'm really, really enjoying it. I can't recommend it to you enough. Um, it's, it's a newer translation as far as time and recency. But what I like about this translation is that it's aiming back to the original text in the Greek and Hebrew uh, texts and manuscripts instead of looking at the reader. A lot of the new translations, they want to look at the reader and make the, make the translation focused on the reader. Well, frankly, it doesn't matter what the reader thinks. It matters what God thinks. So I'm really enjoying this, and I hope that it's a blessing to you um, as we study God's Word tonight. In these challenging chapters, that's really what they are. They're very challenging chapters, and I think this paints it clearly. Verse 1 Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying come here I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the king of the earth the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness And then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Verse six, then I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the 10 horns. The beast that you saw, was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction and those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was not and is not and will come here is the mind which has wisdom the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Verse 12 And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but they received authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, or are the called and elect and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and crowds and nations and tongues and the 10 horns, which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will lay waste to her and make her naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God gave it in their hearts to do his purpose, both by doing their own common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God will be finished. And the woman who you saw is the great city, which has a kingdom over the kings of the earth. This is Revelation 17. This is God's inspired word. The theme, as we review what we've just studied last week in the first eight verses, the theme of this chapter is the final destruction or judgment of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. There is a coming false world religion that already has been picking up steam throughout the centuries that is driven by satanic and demonic forces. Babylon is seen depicted here personified as a woman. There's, there's language here referring to this great Uh, false final world religion this ecclesiastical system that will be destroyed it's personified as john is writing as a harlot now most false religions and world religions of even our time those systems have somewhere near their focus of their false religious system a female leader of some kind a a woman at the head somewhere in this false religious system None more clearly than the false religious system of the Roman Catholic Church and their false worship of Mary. Carl, yeah, I was looking to David Jeremiah today, and he was uh, Revelation twelve. And he said he liked the Revelation because it, it takes the time in the in the chapter to explain what it, what it says, and in the beginning. Of that, of that chapter, and then Spencer explaining what it is. And he said, it's really remarkable how, how it's done. This is one of those prime examples. John writes what he sees, and then the angel tells him what he sees. And in verse 9 he says, here is, if you look at verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven. And he goes into the explanation, which is really helpful. So this really needs no exposition as far as I'm concerned, except for Some of the tricky language that we find in verses 10 through 12. If you look at verse 10, they are seven kings. They five have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now that verse there needs some exposition. And I hope to get there tonight um, to explain what that is referring to. Because it's mentioned in Daniel chapter 2, if you recall uh, that I asked you to read that last time, Daniel chapter 2, verses 35 through 45. So, um, last week we met the idolatrous world system, this idolatrous world system that is to be destroyed, completely judged, and she has described it with words like a harlot, a prostitute. Um, The Greek word here is porne. You don't need any exposition for that. It's a vile word that describes gross acts of immorality, both in lifestyle and profession. Babylon is seen here by John describing her as a wealthy harlot. She's arrayed in purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones, pearls, gold. She has a golden cup of abominations in her hands, which would often be used by a harlot to literally drug the victim Um, And I refer to a victim as then she catches them and and she brings them in, though they willingly know what they're doing. Um, They're not ignorant to this situation. They've put themselves into this situation. But in order to become inebriated, in order that their guilt would be sufficed or or surpassed, she would give them this golden cup of abominations, which was linked to the harlotry of the day. They would essentially have wine mingled with some sort of narcotic um, that would dull the senses. She's referred to with immoralities, drunk, abominations, unclean. Her her harlot's forehead, which was often known in the Roman world, a harlot would have to wear a band around her head with her name and occupation on it so that everybody knew what she was. And she would parade herself this way. She had no problem doing this. A, a harlot in the Roman time would walk around with this public display of what she is and what she was. She had a harlot's forehead, the Bible says. As we've read in verses 15 and 16, we see that she's going to be destroyed by this false economic system. She's seen as naked and desolate. And what we may learn from this chapter, dear ones, and this is the thrust of what I want to uh, focus on tonight as we survey this chapter. um, What we can learn from this is that false worship will not go unpunished. I want to say that again, false worship. There is false worship. It will not go unpunished. Idolatry is sin, often compared to that of harlotry or an unfaithful wife. Throughout the scriptures, when idolatry takes place, God God treats it as though it's a wife who is unfaithful. That emotional pain that a husband would feel if his wife would be unfaithful to him uh that 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 raging loving jealousy that a husband would have for a wife who who does not love him and and goes off to be with another man that's how god refers to idolatry those who worship falsely it's a it's a painful rage that happens that god is going to punish that wickedness and it comes as no surprise To true Christians, when fallen man engages in gross acts of false religion—paganism, idolatry—much of which we see in our own streets today, for instance, the issue of abortion—who knew that so many women would presently cry out violently in order to have the, the opportunity to abort their child? It's demonic. It's demonic false religion. It's paganism. Uh, We find this in Leviticus 18.21 where where Moses is writing there, you shall not give any of your seed to pass them over to Molech. That's a false god. It's a false uh, Canaanite god that they would burn their children and offer them to to the false god Molech. Nor should you profane, profane the name of your god, I am Yahweh, in Leviticus 18:21 I recently read a story of a situation in India regarding the the paganism of Hinduism. A missionary in India discovered a basket tied high in a tree and the rope was up over a branch and down to the trunk of a tree and it was tied around the tree and the birds were feasting upon the contents of the basket. Uh, and with no one on the ground, the missionary looked around to see if anybody was nearby or somehow they tied their lunch up into a tree to keep it from animals or whatever. The missionary untied the rope and lowered the basket down to discover an anti an ant infested corpse of an infant who had been offered to the gods of Hinduism. William Carey, the famous Baptist missionary to India, he wrote an account about witnessing the practice of, I think I'm saying this right, sati, S-A-T-I, which was the practice was, thankfully it was abolished. It was the practice of burning living widows with the corpse of their dead husband. Uh, This was practiced clear up into the late 1800s until it was abolished. Um, But William Carey fought violently to try to get to save this woman, but they burned her anyway. Such is the circumstance in the, in the Old Testament with regard to Israel. I'd like you to take your Bibles and look at Numbers chapter 25. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 25 verse 1. And if I begin moving too quickly for you, just write these verses down and um, study them later. <clears throat> but I don't, uh, Israel was not unaccustomed to idolatrous practices. It wasn't far out of Egypt that they all took their golden earrings out of their faces and out of their (coughs) ears and made it formed into a golden calf and began to falsely worship the golden calf while Moses was on Mount Sinai and not much longer after that while in the wilderness Moses records a circumstance in Numbers chapter 25 verse number 1 and Israel remained at Shittim and the people began to play the harlot there's the phrase again that they're they're worshiping idolatry, they're, they're, they're worshiping false gods. They played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Indeed, they called the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down. They worshiped the Moabite gods to their gods. Verse three. So Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor. That's another name for the devil. They, they joined themselves to devil worship. Baal is another name for uh, for Satan. And the, and the anger of Yahweh, the anger of the Lord, burned against Israel. Why? It's like a husband whose wife is unfaithful. There's a burning there. There's a burning rage that, that accompanies that. It's a righteous indignation. It's a, it's a seeing something that is yours going to be with something else. It's a rage. It's an anger. And Yahweh, and listen to, listen to this instance. Yahweh said to Moses, verse 4, Take all who are the heads of the people and execute them. Execute them in broad daylight before Yahweh so that the burning anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. Verse five, so Moses said to the judges of Israel, can you picture this? (laughs) Hey guys, we have to have a meeting. I want all the heads of each one of the tribes and these clans to come and meet with me. You have a meeting, you're outside the tabernacle, and Moses says, Get your sword out. This is going to be an execution. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill his man, his men who have joined themselves to Baal Peor. In other words, kill these idolaters. <laughs> You need to wipe them out. You need to get them out because they're they're worshiping a false God. They are breaking the law. Verse six, then behold, one of the sons of Israel, he's unnamed, came and brought near to his brothers a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses. So he paraded her in there. He paraded her into the camp, walked her past Moses, which means he walked her past the tabernacle and towards his tent. Verse six, this brother is a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregations. He did this with boldness. He loved his idolatry in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Why do you think they were weeping? One, people were dying from a plague that was resulting from this idolatry. And two, they were sinning against God and that grieved them in the heart. See, when we encounter sin in our lives, do we say, nah, well, hey, you know, it's all under grace, you know? Or is there a, is there a weightiness there? They said, God, wash me, search me, know me, cleanse me with your word, draw me close to you. Is there, a, is there a heart weeping? Is there a tearful weeping? Is there a weeping that you have for the sins of this land? Or, or you know, we see this huge clash right now. There is, there's the pro-life Team and there's the pro-choice group, and they just lock horns, and it's very easy for the pro-life group to hate the pro-choicers. When really we should be looking at them as the mission field. They're the mission field. They they need the gospel. Uh, 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 there is no such thing, by the way, as a pro-life or excuse me, a pro-choice Christian. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't happen. But we see here this weeping in the congregation at the tent of meeting. What a, what a chaotic situation this is. This man walks in to town with, not town, but in the camp with this woman, this Midianite woman who they were not permitted to marry. They had to marry within Israel. They were not permitted to marry the Canaanites. And this man just parades her in. He loved his idolatry. He loved his sin. Notice what happens. You got to like Phineas. If anybody's going to have a son, you might want to name him Phineas because this guy is a bad dude. And I mean bad in a good way. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, I'm in verse 7, the priest saw it. So picture this. He saw it. He gets up from the midst of the congregation. He took a spear in his hand. And he went, verse 8, after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. Then the plague on the sons of Israel was checked or stayed. So those who died in the plague were 24,000. This was just in the camp of Israel. There was this plague that resulted from an idolatrous relationship with these Midianite women. They were worshiping and then bowing down to these false gods. And God literally said, Execute everyone who's joined themselves to a Midianite. Midianite. To say that God takes this seriously would be, I think, even an understatement. Idolatry. God does not bless false worship. That's the whole premise of Revelation 17. He judges false worship. I have much more to say, so we need to pick up the pace. Jesus even brought this up, quoting Isaiah 29.30. You can turn there if you'd like, but um, if you look at Isaiah 29.30, The Lord said, because this people draws near with their words and honors me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. That's what Isaiah says. What's he saying? That that they think they're worshiping me. They worship me with lip service. They're just going through the motions. It's all fake. Their heart is far from me. There's no heart there. There's no longing for God. You know, when we worship, it's a longing for God to be near through his word and by his spirit. It's not lip service. It's not just going through the motions. And Jesus quotes this in Matthew fifteen, eight and 9. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines the commit for doctrines the commandments of men it's tradition apart from the word of god worship that is not according to the spirit and truth as in john chapter 4 the god seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth that worship that is not according to spirit and truth is false worship so how close is this hitting home right now i mean when we think about false worship we think yeah but that's the pagans Well, when we come in here and we're not worshiping from heart, according to the truth of God, that's false worship. God will judge that. How often do we, does our flesh take over when we come to worship? Too often. Way too often. Every time. This is why it's a battle. This is why we have to call God, God, help me, make me worship you. Open my eyes and soften my prideful, stinking heart that I may worship you in spirit and in truth. See, if we're not battling this way, we're just kind of like standing on the sidelines like, yeah, go get them. You know, we're not engaged. There's There's no worship there. And God says, I'll judge that think you're coming through the doors. You think you're just engaging into, into, you come in, I hope they're playing some good music today. No, this, God says, your heart is far from me. It's just lips. There's no there there. And And a very interesting passage that we're not, we don't have time to investigate, but just a reference again to this harlot tree idea. Do you remember what God told Hosea? in the opening chapters of Hosea, Hosea the prophet, that precious, I think Hosea was just such a sweet guy. I really do. I think he was just such a, a, a wonderful man. Just the way he's described in the book and the way he writes and his his overwhelming love for his wife, Gomer. God says, go marry a woman from harlot trees. God says, go marry a prostitute. And Hosea says, okay. And God says, go have children with her. And Hosea says, okay. And he has several children, and some of them may not even be his. And But he loves her. And he actually gets to the point in Hosea where, in the book of Hosea, where he goes and buys her back. He buys her for himself. He loves her so much that he goes and he buys her. That's What God has done for his people, he goes and purchases them from the slave market of sin. We are running in our idolatry. We're running in our sin. And God says, I'll buy you back. And that precious cost, that precious payment that was made to purchase us from sin was the very blood of his own son. What an amazing, loving, gracious, merciful God would do such a thing in order that we may have eternal life. That brings us now to what we're looking at in Revelation 17, this false religious system of Babylon, the great harlot. She is idolatry. And in chapter 17, I got to make this distinction. In in chapter 17, this is the false ecclesiastical or false religious system that we're seeing in chapter 17. When we get to chapter 18, we're going to see the false world economic system system. It's very interesting. But these two chapters, chapters 17 and 18, they do go together. Um, But we're studying here the the Babylon, the great harlot. And in case you're thinking, well, look, we're not Israel, and I'm not Hindu. How does this even remotely come close to me? Many, let me say this, that many professing Christians, or I would say many who profess to be Christians... They abandon true Christianity in their open denial of the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. I'll I'll say that again to try to be as clear as possible. Many who profess to be Christians actually deny true Christianity by abandoning the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. You leave off the word, you leave off Christianity. If you abandon the scriptures and it is not the authority in your life and something else is, or if it's the scriptures and, that's not Christianity. That's paganism. That's idolatry. And many of you may be thinking, well, like, look, like, like the Mormons? Yeah. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventism, Christian science, the major Christian cults. But the Roman Catholic Church professes itself to be the largest Christian, and by the way, they'll say that they are the only Christian church in the world, and it is saturated with idolatry. The Roman Catholic Church is the mirror image of the Israel as in the sense of sacerdotalism, tradition, idolatry, only just using all the Christian terminology. It uses all the Christian words, but under the surface, it's all idolatry and it's all works-based. you say, well, why do you got to beat on the Catholics all the time? Look, it's not my aim to just, to just bludgeon Roman Catholicism. It is my aim that we have a sober view of their grievous errors in order to call them from death unto life. To call them, if we truly love Roman Catholics, you're going to tell them the true gospel. You're going to plead with them to come out of that idolatrous system. But the sad thing is, I think most Christians just want to kind of turn a blind eye and say, oh, come on, we don't want to be too harsh, right? We don't want any conflict. We don't want to get in, you know, we don't want to push too hard against that. Listen, let me share with you some things as to why the Roman Catholic Church is grievously false and idolatrous, okay? These will give you some, some uh, not weaponry, but some, some rocks to stand on. Number one, and you say, well, where are you getting all this? In Romans 17, excuse me, Revelation chapter 17, it is the false idolatrous world system that we see being judged. And I believe that it's going to come under the pretext or the pretense of of some sort of global idea of pluralistic, quote unquote, Christianity. Number one, why do we engage Roman Catholics as the mission field? Is because they believe that the pope stands as the holy vicar of Christ. In other words, he is the head of he is Christ on earth. He's standing in the place of Christ. It's glaringly idolatrous. Not only that, but they teach that the pope pope speaks ex cathedra, meaning that whatever the pope speaks when he speaks ex cathedra is actually as solid and as authoritative as Scripture. You see, that's Scripture and that's idolatry. Under the heading of Pope, the Pope also claims infallibility. The Pope, infallibility is a big word saying that there is sinlessness there, that he does not err, he is infallible. While countless perverted scandals continuously rock the Catholic Church, from the priests on up through the bishops, cardinals, and even into the Pope himself throughout the centuries. Secondly, why is the Roman Catholic Church a a mission field? Because of veneration. And veneration is worship or respect or honor given to dead people. It's, it's, It's in African religions, it's the worship of dead family members. And this is seen rampant in the Roman Catholic Church as many Quote unquote saints that have passed away are prayed to. This is the offering, and number three, this is the also the offering of prayers to the dead, especially Mary. Mary, the apostles, and other dead saints. We don't pray to anyone, we don't pray to to, to any family member that has been deceased. We don't pray to any friend that has been deceased. We don't pray to anyone but Christ through the Spirit of God. I've seen these, you know, pithy little sayings on on social media that when somebody's going through a troubled time, they they say sending prayers your way. Have you heard that? Sending prayers your way. And I I have to look at that. I'm like. Why? <laughs> why, 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 what, what does that even mean? It doesn't have any meaning at all. It's just saying, hey, you know, I'm just kind of sending, it's, here's another phrase that I can't stand in, in our present culture. I'm sending vibes your way. What does that even mean? What's a vibe? I'm sending like good radiation your way, good vibrations. It's like a Beatles song, you know, or I'm singing, it's just crazy talk. Number four. Mary in the Catholic church is referred to as the queen of heaven. Even though Acts chapter one, verse 14 says that Mary is there in the upper room awaiting the day of Pentecost with the apostles and the other believers there and they're worshiping and they're not worshiping Mary They're praying, they're engaged in worship together. And that's the last time we ever hear of Mary in Acts chapter one, verse 14. We never hear of her again. She's never mentioned in any of the epistles. She's never mentioned in the book of Romans. She's never mentioned in the book of Revelation. She's not to be worshiped. That's idolatry. There's gross idolatry within the church itself. Crucifixes, statues, altars, paintings, relics, pilgrimages, and the mass itself. The mass, the Catholic mass is said to be a quote-unquote re-crucifixion of Christ where the bread and wine turn into the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ and then Roman Catholics imbibe that. It's called transubstantiation. Until the Protestant Reformation, the mass was held in Latin. You would go, and I think you can still do this today, you go to a Roman Catholic mass and it's in Latin. You can't understand a thing. Nobody speaks Latin anymore. You can't understand anything the guy's saying. What, what good is that? It's all smoke and mirrors. And people, and I'm, not, I'm getting ahead of myself. Until the Protestant Reformation, the mass was held in Catholic and no one could even understand the chants, the prayers, the reading of God's word, and this still takes place today. Add to this the false doctrines of celibacy for priests, monks, mysticism and deep seated superstition. There is deep seated superstition in the Roman Catholic Church. False worship in the teaching of law keeping, observances, traditions, and ordinances over faith in Christ alone. And you say, listen, Deacon, you're being like way too hard on the Roman Catholics, guys. I have many Roman Catholic family members. I love them so much that I want to tell them the truth. Because when I read Revelation chapter 17 and I see the judgment of this false idolatrous world system that is yet to come, I want to rescue them with anything I have from the fires and call them from death unto life. If you truly love these individuals, you will tell them the truth. The the most unloving thing. Think about it this way: if your if your daughter, my thunderstorm, she's walking up to the to the cook cook stove in the morning, you know, and I'm cooking eggs. And I see that handle hanging out over the edge of the the uh, the range. And I see her be bopping around, and she's going and flailing and flapping and screaming, and I see that she's going right for that handle, and it's hot, and I know it's hot. It's red hot, and those eggs are sizzling, and I just say. I don't want to offend her. <laughs> no, that, that is, that's is—that's like send the dad to jail stuff, you know? If you truly love that little girl, you're going to grab her, move the handle, and say, what are you doing? Because you love that little child. You don't want her to get hurt. And yes, yeah, she's going to scream and yell. Like the other day, she picked up the binoculars and started looking at the sun. I took the binoculars away, and she said, Aah! Because you shouldn't look at the sun with binoculars. But I'm just trying to spare your eyes, you know? You get what I'm saying? What's that? I'm such a mean dad. Yeah, I'm such a mean dad. And in case you think for a moment that we escape this and somehow, okay, that's, that's all well and good, Deacon. But that's Roman Catholicism. That's Mormonism. That's Jehovah's Witness. That's fill in the blank. Today's professing evangelical church is often equally idolatrous, if not more so. False teaching abounds. It abounds today. There's a church on every corner. And you know what I keep hearing? I wish I could find a place that just teaches the Bible. I I can't tell you how many times I hear that throughout the week. And I say, hey, I know a place. I know a place. We teach the Bible. And do you think they'd show up? No, they're stuck in the rut. They want to stay there. Well, because this is where all my friends are. And, you know, I know the pastor really well. And he baptized my kid and blah, blah. And I'm, I'm like, you need to get out of there. You need to get under the word of God. This is no time to just dance around for social club hour. We need to get real about this false teaching abounds don't sit under that false teaching there's female pastors on every single day i read about it again and again and again it's just it's taking off there's pro-choice christians that's an oxymoron there's pluralism pluralism is the idea that there's all the false religions of the world are just trying to do the same thing and Christianity's just lumped in there and you know we're all just trying to figure it out and nobody should be dogmatic anymore Liberalism is rampant in the evangelical church and it's an abandonment of fundamental doctrines for the sake of inclusivity. Have you ever heard that word being used? Inclusivity, acceptance, tolerance, and social justice. It's all put, put into the same bag and really it's just a blindfold. How about this? Emotionalism. I want to walk away from here feeling good because I would never want to leave church unhappy emotionalism has entrenched itself in the church today. And we worship that. If I don't feel good, if I don't get whipped up by the music or the preaching or whatever it may be, then it must not have been acceptable. So we base everything that we hear and see on emotion. When I read the Bible, if it doesn't get me happy, then it must not be good So we use our emotions to read the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to direct our emotions. Emotionalism has penetrated the church. There's lights and entertainment. There's self-centered worship. There's worship that's catering to the person in the pew instead of the God of heaven. Do you know, dear ones, how many times have I told you, we don't come here for us. This is not about you. This is not about me. We come here for him. I would go as far as to say that even music in the church has become an idol. Music in the church can become an idol because if it doesn't peak the way I like to hear music, then it must be wrong. Instead of focusing on the truth that is in the words, what are we singing? Who are we singing to? I call this coffee shop theology. Coffee shop theology is based on emotionalism more than biblical hermeneutics. It fuels a comfort-driven Christianity that cracks like dry ground under the first sign of confrontation and challenge. Why? Because we've been taught to think that we should be comfortable, that we're supposed to be happy all the time, that God is supposed to give us everything that we want and need. That's what our Christianity has become, that we're supposed to just be comfortable when in actuality, God says, take up your cross and follow me. It's idolatry. If we come to Christianity with the mindset of comfort, that's idolatry. And who are we worshiping? In that circumstance, if we're just wanting to feel good, who is receiving the worship? Me, us. We are worshiping ourselves. Worship and Christian living are not a priority anymore in this evangelicalism, and therefore it is dedicated to nothing more than an hour on Sunday morning. This is the situation. In case you thought, oh, that this doesn't involve me. No, this does involve me. This does involve us. This Christianity is concerned more about politics than the propagation of the gospel much of the professing church which goes under the banner of evangelicalism is sinking deep into the mire of the first century. It's sinking so deep into the mire of today's false Christianity that I often wonder if first century Christians would even recognize Christians today. Remember, they were worshiping in the catacombs there were Christians in Nero's courtyards being used as torches. And if somebody doesn't agree with us, we go and cry in a corner somewhere. I wonder if the first century church would even recognize the church that is today. I'm going to have to close here. This is only the introduction to this section. I'm I'm not joking. I literally have, I want to expound verses 9 through 18. But false worship occurs here, not here. I'm saying that false worship occurs in the evangelicalism because worship is man-centered, observance-oriented, and it resembles more antinomianism than anything else. Antinomianism is anti-law. It's anti-law. I get to do whatever I want. It's all under grace. That's much of the church today. Let me read you this quote, and we'll, 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 close, we'll close here, and then I'll, I want to read two more verses, okay? Just hang in there. I was reading a book. I've been telling you about this often. It's a book called Transforming Prayer. It's written by Daniel Henderson. And in that book, he has a chapter. <clears throat> he has a chapter called, um, I think it's called Coming Out of the Prayer Closet. It's a very good book. I, I recommend it to anybody. It's it's called Transforming Prayer by Daniel Henderson, and in that cha- in that chapter, I think it's chapter sixteen. He has it's called Coming Out of the Prayer Closet, and it's it's over the course of the last seventy five years, the church has been taught to just pray in private. So therefore, we don't know how to pray as a congregation. We don't have to. Have, we don't know how to have corporate prayer anymore because we're afraid of what people might think about us. So we're, we don't know what to pray or how to pray anymore. So he says, coming out of the prayer closet. And in that chapter, he writes a section called, and no, I'll hang in there. He writes a section called, If I Were the Devil. And what he means by this is he's looking at how, if I, if I were the devil, how would I sink the church? If I were the devil, how would I break the church? And he writes this. If I were the devil, I would encourage and interest in numbers, activities, strategies, and events. This would keep them away from brokenness, repentance, and passion for God's transforming presence. As long as Christians were sincere but isolated, active but powerless, entertained but shallow, I would win. Aren't those haunting words? As long as Christians are sincere but isolated, active but powerless, entertained but shallow, I would win. That's what Daniel Henderson writes, if I were the devil. Just think about that. That should challenge you as it challenged me this week. Matthew chapter seven, verses 22 and 23. Jesus said, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me, In that day, that final day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy? In your name, did we not cast out demons and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's that's Jesus' straightforward words. He didn't say, hey, all you got to do is just pray this prayer. And he said, I never knew you. I, n- I never knew you. You call me Lord with your lips and with your mouth, but your heart is gone. And one last verse. First John chapter 5, verse 21. I love this verse. This is the last verse in John's first epistle, that little epistle at the back of the Bible. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. John says, little children... Guard yourselves from idols. And that's how he ends the letter. You think this is a serious thing that we're talking about? I think this is pressingly serious. I think this is of utmost importance. Why? Because we're distracted by every little thing. Every little thing. Every little thing fight. And by the way, every little thing in the world fights for your attention to bring it away from God. Everything. It can, be, it can even come as close as your family will fight to draw your attention away from God. Your, your, your job, your activities, your, your clubs, your different things, everything wants to direct your attention away from God. And John offers this warning that I am offering to you, my dear little children, guard yourselves from idols. Any questions or thoughts or comments?